Welcome back to Underground Antics. Today we have a very special guest. It is the wonderful Catherine Hamilton. Now, I'm very excited about our conversation today. You know, we have so many things to talk about. Uh, you know, actually, when I was thinking about the introduction and how to properly introduce you, I was listening to, and like you were on We Are Warriors, that podcast. Mm-hmm. And when you were asked to introduce yourself, I really liked that. Like the first thing that you said, you were like, oh, well, you know, I'm a mom and a wife and I have a, a lovely family. And that's sort of how you uh, defined yourself before you got into like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm also, you know, like an emergency care medicine nurse and a paramedic and I teach this and I've written books and I've done these lectures <laughs> and all those other things. You're like, yeah, that stuff's fine. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm just a person. So I wanted to bring that into our recording today because I thought it was really nice. So well, thank, you. thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. Um, it's very exciting. Um, so you've been in the healthcare and paramedicine space for you know two decades now, or something like that. Almost, so, yeah, coming up on two yeah. two decades. It's hard to believe, actually, wow. when you think about it. It feels like I just graduated <laughs> from nursing school to like a couple years ago. That's an exaggeration. Did but you? Yeah, go- no, definitely. Yeah. Sorry? yeah. <laughs> no, no. I was just gonna say, did you go to nursing straight after school? Um, was that like your first path? Yeah, so when I was, I actually kind of took a break during high school rather than what a lot of other people do is take their break after high school to figure out what it is that they want to do. And so when I went back to, when I went back to high school, I started to pursue courses that would allow me to get into that program because what was happening at the time is my mom was actually, she had gone back to school as a mature student and Mm. kind of guided me down toward that path. So I thought, okay, this is something that is interesting I, I didn't really have a passion for it at the time but i did make sure that i had all the required courses to get into the program and started off with that right right all the science and math and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that make you do yeah you know the fun things um yeah. and so so you, when you started in nursing where was your first like how where did you go first did you go into emergency medicine straight away no i when i started nursing there was very limited jobs available. There was We were very lucky to get part-time around 20 years ago where I was applying. And I wanted to stay local. I wanted to stay in my community, which is in Peterborough when I back then. And in order to do that, I, I did my preceptorship and um, started working part-time on a medical unit. And mm-hmm. within six months, I was covering both sites. I was doing charge at one site. So I was in charge of the department at the one site and then uh, working, you know, part-time both sites. Uh, But it wasn't until about a year after I had started my career that I began to pursue my path in emergency medicine. It was after a really Mm. dynamic uh, community experience that I had with a family member. Right. What, what, What had happened? Well, when I was... Oh, geez. Okay. So first year of nursing, about a year after I had started working my job, my grandmother got sick. And so part of that, because of my nursing background, I was asked to help to take care of her. And so I would take her to different appointments and I would help schedule. She had cancer. And so I was, I was helping to get her scheduled to all of her appointments. And the weekend before her scheduled surgery, she went into pulmonary edema which is when her lungs fill up with fluid 
And so I was in a different yeah. city at the time and about half an hour away. And I got there as soon as I could. And when I got there, she had just passed away. And so that was a really difficult experience oh, for me because I was, you know, trying to manage, uh, you know, being a, a new nurse, right? You, a lot of new nurses, they don't do CPR on a real person for the first little bit, right? So it's not right. something that's common. And so um, I started to work her, uh, do a resuscitation on her and the paramedics came and we worked together to try to resuscitate her. And unfortunately we were not successful, but that experience pushed me to pursue, uh, you know, a, a career in the emergency field. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that must have been really hard, um, particularly because you were like kind of already in that field and, you know, it, it just sometimes it, it doesn't matter, you know, mm -hmm. if the timing yeah, doesn't end up working. It, it's rough. Exactly. Exactly. And it was it's interesting because here we are, you know, almost 20, 20 years later. And I look back on that experience and because it for the longest time, I told myself that the paramedics that were involved in that call were inspiring to me. And they're the ones that inspired me to go into paramedicine. And in the meantime, before I went to school to be a para or to, to get my paramedicine, I started to, you know, pursue different courses. So I took the advanced cardiac life support instructor course and I was doing all these different programs and certifications that were related to resuscitation. And at the time when I started pushing myself down this path, I thought that it was because I was so inspired and this is what I wanted to do. And it was such a, you know, mm -hmm. even though it was a sad situation, it was such a, you know, positive thing for me to focus on, not really recognizing until, you know, years down the road that I was actually pursuing that because I couldn't save my grandmother. And so right. I wanted to make sure that I saved everybody else. So that's been a really hmm. interesting point of, you know, reflection to go back upon, you know, after I've had uh, many years under my belt and, you know, I've gotten a traumatic stress injury as a result. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, especially that it comes so later on and it, it wasn't how you originally had thought it was going to be, you know, um, and no. that, it's pretty crazy. Do you think that like a lot of people in health professions particularly have some kind of incident that inspires them to go there? Like, do you think that happens a lot? I would say for a lot of people who are in any sort of public safety type role, so whether it be policing, firefighting, paramedicine, mm -hmm. corrections, there there is some sort of, not for everybody, but there is some sort of precipitating event that does happen, whether it is, right. uh, you know, a family member gets sick or uh, maybe they've grown up in a house that has some dysfunction in it and they want justice to prevail. Like, there's lots of different reasons that, project these people into these types of professions and in nursing i find that there is some yeah. people that do that but other people want to do it because it's a family thing uh, a lot of mm. you see a lot of sisters and parent like mothers and nursing and so it is something that is is we we know that there's going to always be a need for health care so it's almost yeah. a guaranteed position you know so sure. it, it brings about lots of different reasons i guess yeah, and nursing are very much the unsung heroes of the medical uh, industry, I would say. You know, often yeah. uh, overlooked, underpaid, overworked, as they say, unfortunately, because <laughs> of the amount of, you know, <clears throat> value that, that they add and the expertise that they have and the knowledge. It's it's all great. Um, 
you know, in my family, I have some like people in the medical field and that kind of stuff. And um, that was always, you know, one of the things that was that we learned about um, was that. But so, okay, so you spent some time working in nursing and then you moved into emergency, uh, the emergency ward, I guess you would say. Yeah, I went, like, yeah, uh, went to the emergency department. My mom was actually working there as well. And so I got to work hmm. for a period of time with my mom, which was really cool. Oh yeah. Um, How was that? Yeah, so I worked. It was it was cool. <laughs> the emergency department is such a dynamic environment. <laughs> right. And and I've worked in two. I've worked in two different emergency departments. Uh, one in a smaller city, and then one in a, a metropolis. And so mm. the, it's completely different the type of care that you would be providing from one place to the other because in the country we would see. You know, if it was a gunshot wound that would come in, for example, it was usually because there was some hunting accident that had happened or somebody's BB gun mm. went off. And, and so it was more your farm type incidents, whereas, you know, working in the metropolis, you're actually having people who are victims of homicide, attempted homicide. It's just a totally different dynamic with yeah. the gunshot wounds. Uh, and, you know, you don't really see, well... Back then, we didn't really see a lot of stabbing, so that was kind of a, a new dynamic. But there, mm. it, the emergency department can be anything from, you know, bumps and scrapes and bruises all the way through broken bones to, you know, have someone having a baby to somebody passing away. And yeah. car, like everything that you, you could possibly imagine comes into those departments. That's true. It's it's very interesting how that there's such a difference between like the, you know, more country side of things versus the big city life. And I guess, I mean, I would just guess that part of the reason is just the number of people that are around, right? Um, where in the country, it's less people. And so the accidents and those kinds of things are what people usually come in with. There's much mm-hmm. less crime, there's much less, you know, people on people, violence and things like that. And so mm-hmm. it certainly changes. But I, I mean, listen, I imagine that being in the emergency room is, you know, a, a weird experience a lot of the time. I'm sure you, you've seen or people have come in with, you're like, how did this, what are you doing? You know, like, why did this happen to you? <laughs> do you have, oh, yes. do you have like memories of things like that? Oh my gosh, so many of them. Well, I'll tell you one let's, uh, when I yeah. Let's hear some. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you one of my favorite ones because, like, sure. When you when you're working at triage, so when you come into the hospital, one of the first things that you do is you go to see the triage nurse and you talk to the triage nurse about what's going on with you, and the triage mm-hmm. nurse will decide based on you know your your vital signs as well as your story what part of the department mm-hmm. that you will be going to. And so, I was triaging one night, and this couple had come in. And the wife came to to the desk and she started to talk to me just about how, you know, she her husband couldn't sit down and he just he didn't really want to come over and talk to me. And I said, well, I'm really sorry, but I need to get a, a bit of more information from you so that I can appropriately place Help you. Here. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she come like she pulls him over and I said, OK, why don't you take a seat? And he's like, I, I can't. And I was like, oh, OK. Like I, he didn't look like he had anything going on with him, and so I, uh, I asked. I said, "Well, why why are you having trouble sitting?" And he said, "Well, because I have something up there." And I was like, <clears throat> "Cool as a cucumber." I'm like, "So when you say yeah. up there, which up there do you mean?" 
right? Because there's, you know, people come in with all sorts of things and all sorts there's of There's some options, yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. <laughs> yes, there's many. <laughs> uh, and so anyways, long story short, the, the gentleman, I guess him and his wife had been, you know, playing around in the bedroom and the dildo that they were using got stuck up inside of his rectum and he wasn't mm. able to sit down because it was, you know, not only was it painful, but it was, you know, it was also painful yeah. and giving him pleasure at the same time. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a, a little bit of a bizarre oh, one for, for me. And then I have yeah, another, and you got to be, you got to be there drink. like, Oh yeah. Okay. You got to be oh, all totally, like professional like, about straight, it. You got to be like, oh, straight mm, faced and, mm, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, I mean, In your head, you know. you're like, mm, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, by that yeah. point, I think that I, you know, triage a lot of patients who had stuck things up their bums yes. or had things stuck up their bums. So <laughs> it, it wasn't that exactly is a common the, thing the for people. Time. It is actually. It's funny. Uh, Surprisingly, you know, a, a young a young man. Oh, this is years ago. 23 him and his girlfriend had come in and he was really embarrassed because i don't he said that he was really stressed out and he would use this uh it was a coke bottle like you know the, the glass coke bottles that have the the lids yeah. on them the metal lids for whatever reason he said that he was stressed out and that was one of the things that he wanted to to use to de-stress, de-stress. himself and you know so fair warning to people who are playing with things God. in their bum your 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 butthole is like a sphincter and it sucks things up sometimes so just make sure the bro- the base is broader than your butthole right. <laughs> what do they say it has to have a phalanged end or something like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so anyway he he had gotten this coke bottle stuck up his rectum and he poor guy he had tried and tried and tried to get it out and so we had uh we took him into one of our uh, assessment rooms and we got him up with mm. his legs up on the, the, you know, the stirrups for when we do the, the gynecology right. exams on the women. And we tried to get him to push it out. We tried to pull it out. We weren't able to get it. And uh, they have this thing in the maternity ward called like, it's a, it's a vacuum delivery force up. And so it's, it, it's like a suction cup almost. And it, yeah. you know, attaches itself to something and, and you can pull the baby out. It helps to guide the baby out a little bit more when people are having trouble. And so we ended up calling for that from the maternity ward and tried to get it out with that. And even that was no, no oh, go. Jesus. We, so we ended up sending this, this young guy up to the operating room because this thing, like you have to remember this, this yeah. Coke bottle still had the, the metal lid on top of it so if we have to be careful pulling it because it could tear him on the way out right and uh and so why did he do uh, it he with the lid on i mean <clears throat> what's like just think I, about it a little bit just uh, I guess, he, no <laughs> there's no explanation <laughs> no exactly like, so oh, he went to the this op- seems like a good idea room. i'm gonna give it a try <laughs> <clears throat> I slipped and fell in the shower yeah. <laughs> on a Coke bottle. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, right. he ended up going to the operating room and they gave him uh, some medication called propofol and that helped to relax him enough that they didn't actually have to do surgery on him. They were able to just right. pull it out. So he's really lucky that he didn't end up doing any damage to his colon because that, I mean, you know, depending on how yeah. bad it is, sometimes it's irreparable. Right, and also because it's like non-sterile, and then you're, you know, infecting the areas around, <laughs> yes, and well, you can yeah. cause yourself a lot of problems. Oh yes. I mean, right. it just—it always amazes me. It doesn't. Listen, I'll be honest. It doesn't amaze me that people do those kinds of things, but it amazes me the 
like sort of almost lack of foresight about it. We are just I'm in my head. I'm like, well, just plan a little bit. Just be like, well, what happens if this doesn't go as I thought? Like, is <laughs> how how well can I, you know, like re- recourse my actions based based on what's happening so that I don't have to go to hospital? But right? I, you know, I guess my brain just works a bit differently. And <laughs> well, also, and that's what makes us I, all I've unique. Heard, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I've heard of people put crazy stuff up there, like like child toys and bottles. You said, and it's just you're just like, what are you doing? Just you know, be an yeah. adult, go get something that was made for that purpose. If Hamsters, you're interested in that kind even. of stuff, you know, Ham- like, oh my ham- god, there are stories like yes. that, like gerbils and shit. Yes, yes. Uh, oh. Now, is that true? Have you seen one of those? <laughs> Uh, I have not, but that has happened to someone on that I know as a nurse, like on shift. They they had a patient yeah, come yeah. in with a, a a hamster in their rectum. Now, was it alive? Surely not. Oh, I mean, yeah, sure, oh. it was. <laughs> I mean, I imagine <laughs> yeah. it was when it went in. I guess. But now, how? Uh, did, okay, now logistically <clears throat> speaking, that just doesn't seem like it's possible. Because shame, poor hamster. Right, like right. if anyone's the victim in the situation, it's the poor hamster who's being yes. shoved up somewhere, um, and it just it none of it makes sense to me because I'm like, what's the best case scenario here? That I'm, I, you know, I just I, it's <clears throat> their colon gets so tickled. I don't know. It's uh, it is very strange behavior. It's something that I I too don't understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think. So what happens if maybe- it goes burrowing? <clears throat> well, and that was part of the problem that was happening with this yeah. person is that it was like the, the hamster started to freak out and it started yeah, trying to no scratch doubt. its way out of, of the colon. So I, I don't know the outcome of that person, but uh, nor the hamster, but I would imagine that the hamster probably died at some point. Um, yeah, suffocation, unfortunately. But, yeah, you know, that's what would happen if you get stuck up there. No air to breathe. Yeah, and then, <laughs> no. oh my God, it's so much worse because they're going to be in this, the, the hamster's going to be in this like frantic state of survival, being like, I need to get out and just trying to yeah. like dig and move and just cause like wreckages and chaos. It's just so unnecessary, in my opinion. No, I, I mean, I in their opinion, agree. they were like, no, this sounds like a good idea. <laughs> now, these seem to be a lot of men who this happens to. Why do you think yes. that the why like Ooh. is it something i mean i don't know if you have an answer to this question but it's I, like you know, I, is I, there some filter an that just doesn't work i don't i don't but i i i feel that in some ways there's like this fetishizing fetishization to that and i think that if you know i mean the probably one of the best people to answer that would be actually dr deborah so i'm not sure if you know who she is but yeah. she's a sexologist and she studied a lot of this uh this fetish behavior uh, and so, um, like the paraphernalia stuff, and it, it it is very curious, and and so I'm I'm really not too sure, but I think that she would probably have an answer. Yeah, yeah, it is certainly. I mean, there are answers, and whether they're helpful in explaining what the reasoning is, you know, questionable. You're like, I mean, I suppose that makes sense, but it's still pretty crazy to do what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> You know, and <laughs> like yeah, you can be no, like, that, oh, that it was would... because of this childhood trauma and or something happened here or like this is when you got into it or something. And you're like, OK, yeah, that kind of explains it, but it doesn't really help the situation because what you have done is just I mean, how could anyone do this kind of thing? Oh, but yeah. people do well, it all I mean, the time. 
there, and they there's don't learn a lot of bizarre stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of bizarre stuff that comes in. I mean, we've had people who have gotten high on LSD and have tried to fornicate vehicles, have tried to have sex with like Tide bottles. We had one guy, he had to have, um, uh, he had to have, uh, oh my gosh, what is it called? An escherotomy, I believe, when they have to cut down like the side of the skin because it's swollen so much. And uh, he, yeah, his his penis had got so irritated oh, and raw. I didn't and know it what you were talking so about. Much. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and and so it swelled much more than it is supposed to, and yeah. uh, and because of that, yeah. he actually was risking losing his penis because it was so sw- so swollen. It's called compartment syndrome, and so they had to cut his skin in order for the fluid. Yeah to leak out so that he could have his penis saved. And then actually, oh God, speaking of that, I just remembered we had, oh wow. We had a patient in the old hospital I worked at who, he was mental health patient and we didn't have a spot for him to go to. And so he ended up going to the washroom and cutting his penis off and walking up to the triage and and then at that point, well, it became a totally different type of call. So he had to come right in. But some people will go to extreme lengths to, uh, and I mean, you have to remember this person also sure. is a psych patient. There's some, some, you know, serious mental health concerns with that person. But yeah, to like some people will go to some extremes just to get medical attention. God, what did he use to cut it off? Like a razor blade or something? Like, what do you find Jeez. in a hospital bathroom? <clears throat> I mean, well, unless he brought nothing. it with him. I don't know. Yeah, well, small small town pocket knife. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Handy. You know? Oh. Handy for when you need it. <laughs> Just, uh, that's what you carry it around for. I mean, in case of emergencies, you know? <laughs> In case you just want to castrate yourself, you're just why not? Oh just uh, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that super dangerous though? Like you can die, right? Oh, like you if can you, hemorrhage. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you can think about there's a lot of like vasculature. Serious blood flow. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of vasculature in that area, um, like your whole abdomen down, right? So there's uh, definitely a major risk of um, hemorrhage. That's crazy. You know, the medical field is like. It's very interesting, but some parts of it, which, you know, I guess people who aren't in the field don't really know or think about, right? Like when I was in high school, like we had to do like a job placement thing. Um, and I, I job shadowed an anesthetist or an anesthesiologist, Mm -hmm. like they might call it in this country. Um, and so I went and watched a whole bunch of surgeries of all kinds. Right. And it was really cool. I mean, I ultimately was like this, I don't want to do this, but it was a great experience. Um, and like the tools that are used in surgeries, you're like, this is a hardware tool. This is like an electric saw that you're using to cut through bone. Like it's mm-hmm. so violent. Like not in a, I don't mean to say that in like a, a disrespectful way, like that's how the surgery works, right? And and they do fix things and it, it goes really well. So it's not like it's a bad mm-hmm. thing, but when you're seeing it, you're like, what? you're like, how is this okay? I mean, one that stands out in my memory is I watched some kind of brain surgery that I don't remember exactly what they were doing. Um, but basically they had this guy and they like cut along his forehead, uh, an incision like along his forehead and then basically just peeled off the skin. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know skin does that. You can just rip off someone's face basically. Um, and that wasn't even the worst part The what happened was then they, 
needed to cut through the skull, right? So they drill three holes in like a triangle with a drill, and then they use like a tiny little electric saw to like cut a triangle out of this guy's skull. And then they just took the piece out, and then they just like put it somewhere. And then you could see inside and they could access the brain. And I don't exactly mm-hmm. remember what they were doing, but they were, I think they were like relieving um, pressure, 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 something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was something along those lines. And then when they were done, they kind of just put it back and like stapled it in place or something like that. And then they sewed everything back up. And, and I was just like, this is, I mean, what is going on? You know, <laughs> like that, that was hardcore. Or like another surgery I saw was, this guy was having a leg operation. He had must have broken his like, um, what's the big bone in your leg? Um, femur. Yeah, your femur, femur, which yeah. is yeah, uh, which is like a serious bone, right? And I guess they were trying to like pin something through it, from what I remember, and or take it out. Actually, they was the part that I remember. It wasn't the putting in. So I don't know if they had to re put it in or what was going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they had this metal pin in this guy's leg. And how they were taking it out was the end of the pin had some sort of like a, a flat head, at least at the time. And it would, he, the, guy, the surgeon took a hammer and was just like hammering at this thing to like get it out of the leg. And I was like, this is so crazy. Like what's, I mean, how is this just what surgery is, right? Um, mm-hmm. Never mind like that it works perfectly and that the body miraculously deals with it and heals and, you know, in many cases can recover back to somewhat normal, but the surgeries are, they're so violent a lot of the time. And it, it's just, an, it's an amazing thing to see, but also it's quite, you know, like jarring to witness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, not they, that, and I mean, yeah. they have to use so much force in order for them to be able to remove bones or to be able to get through things. Especially like yeah. it, I went from emerge to a cardiac surgery intensive care unit, which is all open heart surgery. And for some patients, we, we will do minimal, minimally invasive procedures, mm. meaning that they actually don't cut through the sternum. But the, the risk is that if there's any sort of complication or bleed afterward, they have to cut through your chest. And so we got a big saw and we have to sometimes cut through uh, in an emergency. Yeah. It's, it's you know, but it would be the same saw tool that they would use in the operating room to open up their chest. And it's, it's quite interesting to see. But, you, you know, if you're not used to uh, those types of procedures, you would be totally aghast at how much force has to be used in order to, you know, open things up and separate things. Like they have to put these big clamps on to hold people's chest open. Yes. And a lot of people will complain. They're like wind it open. Oh, my, sh- my shoulders are really sore. Well, it's because you were stretched right open, you know. Oh my yeah. God, it's so crazy. And, and the body, yeah, and the body's just, it's so beautiful in how it actually repairs and heals itself after all that. I know. It, it's unbelievable. And I mean, it's, you know, thank God you're not awake when surgery's happening to you because you would be like, fuck this. Like, I don't, I see a saw that looks like you're going to cut down a tree and you want to use that on my chest? No, thank mm-hmm. you. You know? Yeah. Like, that is not <laughs> happening. I mean, it, it looks like one of those power tools. I mean, it, which it is. It's just, a, well, it is. It you know, is. I guess, a, a yeah. special one for, for surgery. It's not from Home Depot or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get any sawdust in those incisions. <laughs> yeah. Or like a, another memory just came to mind of I saw a C-section um, delivery. And like the force that they were using to like basically like open up this woman's stomach 
or I don't know, abdomen area mm-hmm. and to like make a hole so that they can take the baby out. I was like, just you're going to kill her. Just like, I mean, I didn't say that, but in my head I was like, this is just, she's dying. Like this is, that must be what's happening. <laughs> um, and obviously she didn't and it was fine. Uh, and there was no problems. And, and then afterwards I was like, Oh, I guess they're kind of all like this, which is so crazy. And then when you worked in, now, I just thought about how, cause then you, transitioned into like paramedicine and so you you worked as a, a paramedic for a long time and then you must have seen some like or lots i don't know of incidents where you you know you're you're basically coming up to a person who's open in some regard something's hanging out or something's you know hanging off or a bone's mm-hmm. like protruding through and you just got it and then well i mean you you that's what you're there for is to like you know triage and deal with it obviously but it's really must be a shocking thing to see if you're not used to it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, so to, to be to be completely frank and, and clear, my experience in paramedicine was not on mm. the trucks. So I actually worked oh, okay. kind of on, with the, the certification body through the base hospital, which would oversee the, the different levels of care of paramedics in the flight system. I worked in the flight system. Mm. But, I, you know, the experience that I had going through my preceptorship and also in the emergency department really was something that solidified a lot of those things. And we did, you know, obviously work synonymously with them as they brought their patients in. So yeah, I, I, you know, full stop wasn't on the trucks, but definitely still worked for, you know, within, I still work within the field. I just don't work on the truck. Sure. And those patients regardless are still coming right into the ER where you are. Yeah. Right. Yep. So you're not missing out on the action. No, it's just, <laughs> no, uh, no, it's you're actually, just one step it, inside. One actually, it, which is in many ways better for some things, uh, because we're in a more controlled environment. We have more resources, we have more tools, mm. whereas paramedics who are on the front lines are very limited sometimes to the resources that they have available within the region, sure. uh, you know, you know, even depending sometimes on the level of care or experience of their partner. Is it a new partnership? Do they work well mm. together? What kind of situation are you going into? There's a lot of um, variability in how predictable things can be. So there's you know major safety considerations and you know highways, buildings, you know, your natural disasters. There's all sorts of different things that they're responding to that you know bring a lot about a lot of risk. Yeah, and also just dealing with the people when you get there right like yes it's one thing where you're like oh okay i gotta deal with the safety concerns for myself and and my partner and you know figure out that situation while at the same time being like well i need to save this person or Mm -hmm. you know do whatever needs to be done and then there's also another element of like well this who is this person are they going to be receptive to us like do they want help Are, are they on you know, some like heavy drugs that are going to be so erratic that their behavior is going to like threaten our safety um, Mm -hmm. or mentally ill or something like that, which I'm sure happens all the time. Um, It's so much to manage. And then at least, you know, where, where your role comes in, like in the hospital, like that part's kind of been dealt with and now they're ready for treatment. Although I imagine Mm -hmm. they still sometimes put up a fight, right? Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, especially, well, especially the, the ones who are um, on opioids, when you start to provide mm. them with naloxone, you have to be really mindful as to how fast and how much you're providing to them. 
Because what we want to do with that is just to make sure that they are able to, to take a good breath. Like we don't want to be trying to completely reverse it because a lot of you have to think about each individual situation and right. the individual themselves may be a long term user because of some sort of like medical problem. And now sure. they've become an addict and now they're using a lot. So when you take that away from them, they're not only confused, but they're also in a ton of agony because you've just reversed that narcotic effect. So a lot right. of times what we will do, it depends on the patient, is we will actually put a soft restraint on their wrists uh, because we don't want them to wake up and start like thrashing out because they could, yeah. they could potentially injure people, right? But I wanted yeah. to go back to, you know, the comment you made about, you know, managing things on scene and there being sure. a lot of people because that that can sometimes be a safety concern in and of itself um i actually so interestingly enough a couple of years ago i had um i just gone to go get some salad my husband asked me to go mm-hmm. grab some salad so i went to go grab some salad for dinner and so i just where i was i happened to be right near a shopper's drug mart and they this particular one had some of the produce in it so i went in grabbed a bag, walked out, and as soon as I looked over to my left-hand side, I could see somebody lying on the road and a bunch of people standing around them. And of course, mm. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sakes, right? Like, oh, no. Like, I got I to deal with this I, now. Yeah, I got to do this, right? So I, I was yeah. on the phone with somebody, so I let them go, and I went over, and this is a major intersection. So this is uh, here, Ontario, and Eglinton and Mississauga. So we're talking, you know, like six lanes wide, on yeah. you know both sides and what had happened was this gentleman who uh it was it was nighttime he jaywalked he jaywalked into oncoming traffic and the poor girl who had hit him didn't see him a- until it was too late so she she yeah. had hit him and he actually i i'm really glad that i didn't see the impact because he was thrown about 50 feet Jeez. and he was probably about six foot four like really tall about 350 pounds like he was a big tall and big gentleman and so i i run over there and nobody was really doing anything but standing there they hadn't called for an ambulance at this time so of course i'm doing my assessment on this gentleman and he's not responding to me and i check his pulse and sure enough he's in cardiac arrest mm-hmm. so i you know now of course like this shit's coming. It's becoming real. It's happening. Oh, I'm in the middle of this big intersection. I've got traffic zooming by, you know, so of course I had to start delegating roles. I'm doing CPR. I'm delegating roles to all these people. And, you know, someone's like, I'm a first responder. Someone's like, I'm a volunteer firefighter. So I was able to get people to help, right? Because this is what you got to do. Yeah. You got to use whatever resources are around you to try to, you know, check traffic, make sure that, you know, it's safe that there's, you know, a barricade at least around it and a point of, um, of entrance for the the ambulance and the other first responders to be able to come. And so anyways, I'm doing all this stuff and, and this is where it kind of gets a little bit weird. Cause I, I also am a medical director for uh, a couple of marathons in the GTA. And so I just happened to have an AED in the back of my car and I would never normally have one of those in my car. Hmm. And so I got someone to, you know, take over compressions for me while I went to go get the AED and ended up bringing it out and using it and, you know, running the resuscitation. And then the paramedics came and we loaded them up into the back of the truck and we, you know, ran through everything and then they went to the hospital. And, uh, but, you know, to like those people that were there, 
had they not been there, had this been, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, it would have, I would have been feeling pretty helpless at that time. But because yeah. I had other people there, I was able to assign people tasks and be able to, you know, do what was best for that person at the time until the appropriate level of care was able to break, to get on scene and transport him to the hospital. Yeah, um, that's crazy. And also, like, you do have to take control, right? If you know mm -hmm. what you're doing and you can, because people just that one, they're in shock and they're like, well, most people are like, I don't know what to do. Like, maybe I'm going to mm -hmm. make it worse. Like, I don't want to, you know, like, yeah. well, and it, it's a, what's it called? The, is it the bystander effect? Where there's, the bystander effect um, because someone thinks yeah. that somebody else knows better or is going to do something about it so they don't yeah. do anything. Or yeah, everyone's like, someone else yeah. will do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a really big problem. Um, it's and a then that was problem, one of the things that was happening. Yeah. yeah, that was exactly what was happening when I first walked out of the Shoppers Drug Mart is that everybody was standing there not knowing what to do. Because, I mean, I had missed what had happened just prior to yeah. that, that moment with the gentleman being hit. So I didn't get to see that. But, excuse me, I'm sure that the people who were there that witnessed it, like it would have been so traumatic for them, right? And that poor woman, I feel so bad for her. I like, I, yeah. I, I still think about her sometimes because I'd like to know like how she's doing with everything. Cause like that, that was an accident. And this gentleman, he died. Like he, mm. usually when there's some sort of, you know, major traumatic injury such as that, and they're dead in a, in a uh, pulseless electrical activity, uh, on the monitor because i actually had a monitor on my screen that showed what cardiac rhythm he was in they typically don't survive it's like pretty right. much zero chance of survival so I, I think about her often and and how you know she's she's been managing and coping because i remember coming out of the back of the ambulance and seeing her as patient number two now yeah, because for sure. the adrenaline had worn off of her that was keeping her calm and now that this gentleman was in the ambulance and on his way to the hospital, that sh like she just went into shock and just was laying on the ground and couldn't like she was shaking. I thought she was having a seizure at first, mm. but it was just all that yeah. excess uh, adrenaline that was in her system. It, it's I mean it, it's almost impossible to imagine unless you're you've been there, right? Where mm -hmm. you're just driving home, and all of a sudden you know, someone just jumps out of nowhere, you can't see them, there's nothing you can do about it. And then they're just you hit them with your, you know, car, which weighs like a fortune, it doesn't matter who the person <laughs> is, it's just like, One, goodbye, Charlie, you know, pounds. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and there's nothing you can do about it, either. It ha it's happened, and it's done. And you, you, there's no going mm -hmm. back, right? Um, yeah. it, it, it definitely would be, I imagine, hard to deal with. I mean, yeah, I guess mm -hmm. some people would deal with it differently, right? Like depending on what they thought of their role in the situation versus, you know, because I, I mean, just speculating, I would, I would think that some people could like psychologically work their way around it by like blaming the other mm -hmm. person and being like, it was their fault. Not, I didn't do anything, yeah. um, which in some sense is true, but it doesn't absolve responsibility totally because it was still you in the car and your action mm -hmm. or inaction like in some way led to this being a problem um i mean i say a problem you know like a, a, a death and so yeah um, 
I'm, I'm sure it, it's terrible to deal with. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, like I, yeah. And that's why I think because I have my own experience with mental health challenges or traumatic mm. stress injury from working within the emergency department, I actually have a lot of compassion for people in instances like this because her whole life has changed. Her, this man's yeah. life and his whole family, like all their families and friends, like their lives have changed forever. And so, you know, to, to, to recount that, like, I just, I, I, I only hope that that woman was able to get appropriate psychological services and that she had a really good recovery environment within her home and amongst friends so that she could actually work through that and not be left with, you know, lasting damage. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, it, it does. It, it can cause a real upset in your world. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the crazy part about it is that, like, these things happen sort of all the time with enough people in the world right um and you don't think about it until it happens to you or if you're you know a big news consumer i suppose you might see all the tragedies and things like that i tend to avoid that as much as possible i'm like i don't i don't need this in my consciousness Mm -hmm. you know like not that I, i not that i pretend it doesn't exist but i'm like i don't want to spend six hours of my day just reading about the tragedy in the world and mm-hmm. not being able to do anything about it, not knowing what's even possible to do about it, and in many cases, completely unable to do anything about it, particularly mm-hmm. for accidents, right? Like, you can take safety precautions, and you should, and there's only, but there's only so much you can do because we are, you know, well, that's to a large I mean, degree they're, they're, I mean, fragile. Truthfully there, yeah. truthfully, there are no accidents, right? Like, like you know, so... Um, this, yeah, this, you know, sure. in this, in this situation, this person made a decision to step in front of traffic and that, you know, led to an, his unfortunate demise and, and this young ladies, you know, living with those, well, the whole, everybody's living with the consequences of that decision of his, right? Yeah, no, for sure. You're right. The, the accidents is like a, a complicated word because it is decision-making, um, a lot of the time. I guess it's mm-hmm. more of an accident if, like, you're walking and a boulder falls and hits you and kills you, and there was just nothing that could happen. You know, yeah. I mean, you kind yeah. of you, you're somewhat <laughs> responsible for your actions. You're like, oh, I chose to walk this path today, but well, it's hard to blame people for that. <laughs> that. Yeah, well, no, and I mean, I mean, really, at the end of the day, like, you know, the last thing we want to do is be placing blame on anybody. This. Just a really no, no, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you of walk course. down that path. That yeah. holds her. <laughs> you know, I guess it was just for some people. It's just the way it is, right? It just happens. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite road signs is the sign of like falling rocks, like when you're driving on mountains or things like that. And mm-hmm. really, it's such a ridiculous sign. I mean, I know why it's there because they're being like, "Well, watch out." But in um, for the most part, what Ooh. they're saying is, "Be lucky." right they're like this shit might happen down this road so if you're choosing to go down here you know pray or something like that because your car is going to be crushed uh or it could be and then you know people will be like well there was a sign it told you that was going to happen so you know i mean i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's um yeah it's hard hey and we live in a really strange like being a human is very strange um like I spoke to someone on the podcast uh, the other day who had, was like diagnosed with like early onset Parkinson's. And so he's mm-hmm. had to deal with that. 
and I'm speaking to someone um, coming up soon who deals with, who has had cancer and has it like recurring every year or whatever. And then he's now become like a, a therapist to help people with it. And, you know, he deals a lot with people dying, just, you know, like anyone mm-hmm. in the medical profession. And it, it's like, for most people, the concept of death, you kind of know that it's there. You just don't really want to think about it for the most part, particularly mm-hmm. your own death, because it's it's just like, it's almost incomprehensible to even imagine what what happens, right? And it's scary for sure. And yet it's such a real part of life, right? And yeah, it's I a think part that of we don't everything. talk about it enough. Yeah, well, it, no, it, it is yeah. part of it is part of the life cycle, and and you know, it's um, going through my own experience recently with losing my mom. That was mm. that was really hard for me because it made me question a lot of a lot of things. Like, where do we go? Like, why do yeah. we go there? Why do we die? Like, it was it was sudden. It was a very sudden death. It was unexpected, and uh, and so for me, that yeah. I think that was probably the most difficult part of it was that you know i was just having a conversation with her like the day before and a few days earlier and and yet here we are and and that person is no longer present and so i think that we tend to focus a lot on what is objectively seen and not so much on the subjective aspects of things and so we we really well because this is our this is our human experience is to be with and amongst one another and so when mm-hmm. those elements change and those people are no longer there, it really starts to make you question, you know, everything about life and, and what is the purpose of death, you know? And so oh, that's a whole other conversation, but sure. it, uh, it, it is definitely something that is intriguing. And I think that uh, it's, it should be normalized. It is part of what we experience as human beings. And so many people are, are, are so scared of the, or, or don't even think about it. And prepare yeah. themselves and, and, for, for... And they don't think about it because they're scared, right? Um, right, yeah. And and understandably, not not irrationally so. Like, your mm-hmm. your existence is coming to an end, as you know. Yeah, it. yeah. Perhaps, perhaps well, yeah, something else exactly. happens afterwards, but who you think you are at the moment, that's temporary, right? Mm-hmm. And we also, we live in a really, like in, in, in Western cultures particularly, I suppose, is all I can speak to is, death is very much hidden from us as much as possible mm-hmm. right even like even like people who are like aging like we kind of there's a there's a very much a sense of like just kind of put them over there we don't want to see it because it reminds us of our own mortality and mm-hmm. you know like um the whole like burial process and things like that it's off, not always but it's often very like um secretive and it's like you know it, it it's you know, you can't like see dead bodies, like there's mm-hmm. like laws against those kinds of things. And it's like, well, I mean, if you go to just like any third world country, you'll see dead bodies everywhere, not everywhere, mm-hmm. but a lot mm-hmm. because yeah. they got to deal with it themselves. Right. And so yeah. for them, death is like a, it's just viewed differently. And I think it's, it's definitely brings perspective into your life when you are confronted with death and mm-hmm. whether it's, I mean, usually it's more serious when it's your own but most people will will experience other people's deaths more than their obviously more than their own because you only get one of your own but 
Um, well, and, a lot of people yeah. get a lot. A lot of most people die only die once. <laughs> yes. There's a few people that die a few times, <laughs> and because That's of true. the grace of yeah, there's a, because of the grace of you know their circumstances, medicine. who was there, how it happened, medicine. Uh, it yeah. certainly can can provide life for other people for some people. Again, yeah, and and is, near death experiences. Yeah, near-death experiences have are always so fascinating to me, right? Or it, we say near-death, but a lot of the times it's like, well, actually, you did die, technically speaking, and then you were resuscitated, and so then you were mm-hmm. alive again. And, mm-hmm. you know, your I guess your brain and your experience doesn't exactly switch off for a while, and so people come back or get resuscitated with memories and ideas of, like, what happened and how it transformed their view of living again not always but mm-hmm. oftentimes it give it like shocks yeah. the system right yeah, yeah. Um, well someone that i knew from uh from when i was a teenager she just yeah. recently had a cardiac arrest so her and i are around the same age and she ended up you know she was she was dead for a period of time and they were able to resuscitate her and they diagnosed her with an arrhythmia she had long qt syndrome which was something that she never mm-hmm. even knew what that she had had and so again circumstantial she just happened to be i I hate to use this because it kind of sounds cliche but right right place right time and got thankfully got the care that she needed and she's still alive today and her whole outlook on life has completely changed i haven't yet had the chance yeah oh yeah but i haven't yet had the chance to have a discussion with her to ask her about her experience because this was just within the last couple of weeks so i don't want to be like hey so what was it like to die you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) not exactly the most appropriate conversation (laughs) like i'll let you recover for a bit take some time but uh, yeah exactly you know and uh, but i find though that people who have gone through that really really tend to lean more toward the spiritual side of things and really like there's something that happens to them that they see or they experience Mm -hmm. that um, doesn't necessarily make them believe in God, but definitely instill some sense of like otherly world around them that we're just not consciously aware of right now. Yes. And it certainly puts into perspective what's important in this world world and experience right mm-hmm. where even people who get diagnosed with like a terminal illness or something a lot now not always because sometimes people will fight it and suffer until they die unfortunately but other people mm-hmm. that will be the impetus for a transformation of consciousness in the sense of like oh i, I get to see what's important to me what's meaningful to me what's part of my existence that's in, that's important all of these small problems that we you know spend so Mm -hmm. much time thinking and worrying about it's like that shit doesn't matter right it matters relatively speaking i mean it like it does matter um but in a thousand years it doesn't matter and then yeah exactly you you just go like one step up and you're like oh this doesn't matter like you know little and little conflicts and little even big conflicts are, are relatively speaking not what's the most important thing you know mm-hmm. um i mean like i think i know this is a bit of a random thought about it but i was thinking about how like if aliens were to like view earth right just from a, a perspective of like humanity and mm-hmm. we and we sort of some we view other animals in that kind of light where you're like oh you know there's like a colony of ants let's say 
and there's two colonies and they're fighting each other right and they're and they're they're killing each other over territory and food and whatever is important and resources and whatever and for us we're like oh i mean that's that's how it is and it's a you know i don't want to get involved for the most part um and yet from the ants perspective like they have each ant has a whole life of you know difficulty and hardship and like finding food and finding shelter and dealing with the weather and dealing with uh, predators and dealing with humans stepping on them and there's like a mm-hmm. whole world of challenge and difficulty that is important for each individual ant and the collective at the same time and yet mm-hmm. you go one step or two steps higher and it's like oh they're just ants doing ant shit you know well, um, yeah. well it's all these like little <laughs> micro communities you know surrounded yeah, exactly. by other micro communities surrounded by macro communities and it's interesting because yeah, they don't have the, like they don't have the same consciousness as we do. Right. Like they can't yeah, no, think about this in the same way, you know. So it's all usually driven by, um, you know, different uh, scents, and, like pheromones, almost. And I I don't know what ants have. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> but, but but they they're definitely uh, they do follow scents, and it's just it's very much it's it's a lot of order. I find it to be very very orderly within those yeah. different types of communities but then i also you know i'll be mowing the lawn and here i am mowing the lawn and i'm thinking to myself can the ants like what do they feel do they hear yeah. this do, like do they have ears to be able to hear the sound or do they just feel the vibrations and does does me mowing the lawn or walking over top of where their colony is does that put them into a panic mode or are they used to like there's yeah you know i i consciously think about this stuff but i'm like the yeah. ants don't give a shit about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I, it, that reminded me of like, I was doing some gardening and when you do planting and stuff, I find a lot of worms. Um, and I, you know, I don't like to kill them. So I just kind of pick them up and, and like chuck them into a place where I'm not busy so they can get back to whatever it is they, they were doing, yeah. the worm. <laughs> and then I thought about it and I'm like, what a crazy experience for this worm where it was like doing its own thing and then all of a sudden it's unearthed, right? Brought to the surface, just put in the sunlight and then this giant creature just like picks it up, like looks at it and then goes, hmm, and then just like chucks it somewhere else and then it has to be like, and then goes about its business again and it it would just like a mind-blowing experience if that had Mm -hmm. to happen to us, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Like that and like people who, who have had like experiences with alien abductions. Like if we give them the benefit of the doubt and say that it happened to them, it's some sort of similar thing where you just get sucked up and then looked at and evaluated and then just put back somewhere. And then they're like, all right, figure it out yourself now, you know? And yet for them, <laughs> it, it was like this just another Mind world altering. has happened. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It, it's it, Nature is really cool. It's like, as you say, it's order and and yet it's chaos right Mm -hmm. um like evolution is pretty chaotic uh and like requires a lot of struggle and challenge and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely it's always fascinated me those kinds of things now how did we get onto the subject i can't exactly we started talking we started talking about death first i think we started talking yeah we started talking about you know teams and resuscitation or not resuscitation but like working, working with people in in uh you know, safety considerations for paramedics and stuff. But yeah, no, um, the, the death part of it is kind of what triggered this aspect yeah, yeah. of consciousness and whether or not, you know, 
people really experience what they experience. So it was interesting. What happens when you die? Exactly. Well, what's interesting is when we do certain types of surgeries, we'll Mm. do what is called a circulatory arrest. And this is usually for major, major surgeries where they have to basically, you know, repair from the heart all the way down to the kidneys, like part of the aorta, right? Okay. And, And so the circulatory arrest process involves the person being hooked up to a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. So they put all these... Um, put all these hoses and stuff into the heart and the lungs. And basically what they're doing is they're simulating the heart and lungs. So they're working. This mm. machine is is acting as a heart and lung for this person while we drain all of the blood out of the person. So they have no blood at all. And it's, Jesus. you know, so the, the, the uh, machine, the cardiopulmonary bypass machine is filtering this blood and keeping it moving within itself. But the person is drained of all their blood. They get cooled down to a really cool temperature, usually around between like 13 to 18 degrees, if I remember correctly. And the surgery will proceed. It'll be hours and hours and hours that they're on the surgical table. And then once the surgery is done, then they will. And this person is clinically dead. They've got no blood, nothing. <laughs> and yeah. we'll put the blood back into this person and they'll start to, to warm them up and wake Kicks them. Kicks not laugh again. Well, mm-hmm. what, so wait, hang on a second. What, what what are those surgeries that are being done? What, what, when are, are they major. doing this to people? So, uh, so be like a, a Bental procedure where um, they're basically, you know, it's a very, very large um, aneurysm that has torn its way all the way down the, the aorta. And so that, mm-hmm. that sometimes will require surgical intervention from not only a cardiac surgeon, but a thoracic surgeon. Or some really complicated, just some really complicated surgery will require that. So it's not very, it's few and far between where we're actually performing what's called a circulatory arrest on patients. But those patients, they take longer to to wake up. Like we don't wake them up as fast as we would normally wake up a patient who's had just a, you know, uncomplicated cardiac uh, bypass surgery. Like we'll usually wake them up about four hours after surgery where this one we might let the, like we'll wait till the next day till we start lightening their sedation because um, we just we find that they take a little bit longer to recover because their body has been through so much more. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. <laughs> you know, you just you drain them of their blood and hook them up to machines. So it, it makes sense that the their body is like, mm, what's what's happening? Yeah. You know, like this this is yeah, going to take a minute a lot to them, recover. A lot of them have delirium, so we call we call that pump head. Uh, okay. <laughs> for those patients, yeah, because <laughs> because they're confused and sometimes combative, and and just it, it takes a, a longer time to wean them off the sedation to get them up and mobilizing. Right. So is is that like an instinctual, like fight or flight reaction when they're sort of coming around and they're just like panicked and uh, for you some, know, fighting? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you, I mean, did they do that for like heart transplants? Up, so, uh, I, you know what? I I can't answer that question because I don't know. No. Um, I would imagine that they probably would because they'd have to cross clamp all of the major vessels to mm. the heart. So I would I would assume that they would do a circulatory arrest for that. But I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, sure. Yeah. But sorry, you're saying that yeah. when, when they wake up, yeah, they're, they're coming when, too. So when, when they wake up. Um, you have to remember that they're they're waking up with because they're still on life support, right? So they have yeah. they have a, a endotracheal tube, so breathing tube. They're hooked up to a ventilator, so they're not breathing naturally. So there's this like narrow, almost like straw that they're 
you know, it's, it's painful, right? It's painful. It's yeah. unnatural. This machine is forcing air into the lungs. You're disoriented because you're on, you know, sedation and narcotics. Um, and, and you've got all these lines and tubes and there's all these, you know, pumps running and all, it's just, it's very intimidating for the person yeah. who's waking up because they don't know where they're waking up. There, there's nothing that's familiar to them. You know, they're, they're having side effects from the medication and then they've got all these lines and tubes all through them. Plus, I mean, like even in their chest, you know, they've got mediastinal chest tubes. Some will have, um, Swan Gans catheter that is, you know, basically it's like a, uh, in the neck yeah it goes it goes into the neck and then this um this wire they they inflate a balloon on the end of it and it travels through the heart and it goes into the right atrium so that you can actually you know check the, the pressure within the heart so yeah it's, it's really cool yeah. stuff really cool that stuff. so they cool. wake up with all these yeah they wake up with all these lines yeah. and tubes and it's so scary for them and and so yeah like some some are combative yeah yeah, I'm sure. And I bet you they don't even remember that part a few days later. They're no. like, I don't, yeah, just no, no memories. Um, sedation is help, very helpful in that capacity, right? Um, yes, oh, yes. They're just like, yeah, all right. Um, man, it, medicine's truly extraordinary, like what can be done these days, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how much is known, even though relatively little is still known, on a broader scale of things, it's like mm-hmm. so much already is known and can be done and can be helped, used to help people. It's, it's truly extraordinary, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, it really is. I mean, they, they were doing like medieval surgeries like back in the day with some <laughs> success, I would say. Um, they were trying, <laughs> Blood but we're, we're, yeah, we're definitely at a different place or like skull screwing mm. or things like that. Um, yeah. I saw, I mean, I, just a re- quick point, a random point. I saw a thing of, they found this s- skull from thousands of years ago that had basically had a piece of it had been replaced with like gold or metal or something. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, and it had, the bone had grown like fused. I don't know what the right word is, such that fused, they yeah. knew that it that they had survived the surgery and that it had worked because there was growth that happened afterwards. Right, and so it was a successful open head surgery that they managed to survive infection and all that kind of shit. And like, how did they do that? I mean, it, that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, oh yeah, in, well, in my I, opinion, that was was that an Egyptian case? I think I remember reading. I think so. Yeah, the last month. Yeah, I think it was the last within the last month. I read an article on that, and it is truly amazing some of the things that they were capable of doing then. Yeah, and that were I mean, some of the of things were. That. Yeah, some of the things that they did back then were a little bit less, you know, amazing. And now, what we with what we know today, <laughs> you're like, mm, I mean, okay, like you you were trying. And I guess we'll look at what we do today in a similar light, you know, in a hundred oh, or yeah. two hundred years from now. We'll, oh yeah, they'll look I, back like, and they'll be like those barbarians. So hard, <laughs> it's so hard to even comprehend where medicine is going to go from here. Right, we, particularly like, with like cybernetics, you know like hooking up to machines and that'll oh, yeah. just take a new direction completely. Like what does life mean? Oh, have it, yeah. The whole robotics aspect of having the surgeon controlling the robot rather than doing the surgery directly. Like they are still doing the surgery, but they're just not directly cutting into the person. So they're, yeah. they're doing that stuff now. Right. 
And even even yeah. with um, the the mRNA vaccine technology that is being utilized for these COVID vaccines, I mean that stuff has been being studied for quite a few decades. I want to say like three decades now, and yeah. um, you know it, it's finally found its purpose in in the medical world and where that could potentially go is so exciting because basically what they're doing is they're they're just putting the genetic code uh, for different disorders into this mrna and it's helping to like they're they're thinking about using it for all sorts of different things cancers multiple sclerosis like you name it and so so we're you know we're in the infancy stages of it being utilized for a lot of you know, the ailments that we understand and, and are experiencing. So it's going to be exciting to see where that goes in the future. Yeah, it, it's extraordinary, the science that has come through. I mean, I don't know if this is mRNA related, but I saw a thing on um, like an HIV vaccine that was mm-hmm. uh, that is being developed at this point that had never been around before and, you know, all sorts of just advancements in, in that field. And it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean... It, what the craziest part to me, I mean, I, I know we're sort of coming to the end of our podcast, but I'll just mention the craziest part to me about like genetics is that what they figured out is the best way to do is to use the genetics that you have and just change it to fix things mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to add or take away or create something new. Um, it's about adjusting how your body self-regulates and being able to like fix it that way. And I mean, I guess medicine in general, like, um, you know, pharmacology in general, to some degree does that anyway, right? It's just not at the genetic level. It's more at the, I guess, molecular level or something like that. Um, Particularly with like brain chemistry and whatever, where they're trying to rebalance things. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyway, the future holds a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It does, and it's exciting. And I'm I'm excited to see what, what comes out of all this new technology. Yeah, me too. Um, we just need to get over this COVID bit and then, you know, soon, hopefully soon. <laughs> soon yeah. <laughs> Think things are I, somewhat looking up, you know? Well, now that we have access to more vaccines, you know, a lot of people will have had their first shot in the next couple of months at least. And so, you yeah, know, we'll, we'll see things start to open up in increments. And you know, it's been really great to see that, the science, like nothing's really changed with the science. It's just more the understanding that how COVID as a disease works with relation to the vaccines that now that we know that it's similar to other other respiratory pathologies in that, you know, you have a lot of immunity when you have your vaccine, this mm-hmm. will ha- allow us to open up our economy, open up, you know, allow people to get back together and have some semblance of normalcy. So I'm, I'm hopeful that yeah. by this time next year, everything will be open and we'll be able to get back to, you know, I don't want to say status quo because obviously it's it's going to be impact, impactful to society for a few decades to come. But, you know, yeah, it'll be that's for sure. some semblance of normalcy again, which will be great. I just want to, like, yeah. I, want to, I want to visit my friends. I want to hug people. That's the one thing that I really miss about yeah. this is not being able to, to hug people. I'm a big hugger. <laughs> yeah, me too. The contact is the contact deprivation's rough. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, listen, you do what, what you got to do, do, you know. 
Exactly. I'm not sure what we're going to do right now because we have, like, th this pandemic has exposed the, the deficiencies that we had already existing within our healthcare system and has actually exacerbated many of them, the opioid crisis being one of them as an example. Yes. Uh, yeah, the um, addictions and mental health uh, situation is yeah. going to, I mean, it's already taken, you know, I, I don't know what the right way to phrase it is, but it's not going well. Um, no, I, to no, say the I least. think they released a report uh, over around 2,100 people died from opioid overdoses between March and December of last year. So that mm. report just came out. So that that's really, that's really concerning really yeah. really concerning so we're, we're yeah, dealing with a crisis definitely. within a crisis and it's you know it's going to take a really long time for us to be able to find our balance with that i mean the, the opioid crisis was mental health and, and addictions has been you know an ongoing issue that has been you know historically underfunded and historically misunderstood and there's so much more that can be done to mitigate some of these issues that i just don't think that like the, the resources the time yes. the fun the funding like there's so many variables that are influencing this that are going to continue to negatively impact those specific areas because there's you know it's it's going to be generations before we can fix some of these situations yeah definitely i mean not to get into it but like just think about the kids that have gone through this covid situation you mm -hmm. know the fear that has been instilled in them somewhat understandably but like of just other people right like kids mm -hmm. have just for the last 18 months have been told like don't go near anyone don't touch anyone um yeah you know the world every everywhere you go is dangerous it's not the exact narrative that people have told their kids i'm sure but like the general that's message that's, yeah, yeah that's what, that's what they, they hear because that's what we've mm -hmm. all been feeling we're i mean just adults are in a different position to know that it's kind of a temporary thing you can revert mm -hmm. or like you know, the newborns who have been born into COVID who have seen five or 10 people in their whole life, right? Yeah. Never How been in like... impact them in the long yeah. term? Yeah. We'll have to wait 15 years to see whatever. And I'm sure it will. And the, and the germophobia mm -hmm. is going to, you know, skyrocket and the anxiety and the depression. And I mean, anyway, it's, yeah, you I know, mean, it, it as a society, has, like, we've got a lot to deal yeah. with. Well, it certainly it's it's and it's going to be a shift. Um, I I've always been a big believer in you know being exposed to the micro microbes in my environment. I love to have my windows yeah. in my house open. I think it's important to to because we've we've existed with these microbes for you know I mean they've been around for longer than we have, but sure. you know for hundreds of thousands of years at least humans have been you know interacting with these microbes and. I find that we're actually, because we're we're not exposing ourselves to enough of them, I feel, and this is my personal observation and opinion, sure, yeah. um, that, you know, people are, are not building really healthy immune systems because they're sanitizing the shit out of everything. And all these things that would have been normal for us are now maybe more impactful because we we haven't been exposed to them or you know some of the things that we're doing are creating um, like resistance from these microbes mm -hmm. and so we can't treat them properly so um you know you don't necessarily have to sanitize everything it doesn't have to be clean all of the time and and you know no germs um it, it yeah. is healthy to expose yourself to to what is out in this world 
um, you know, if your kitty yeah. eats Lick dirt, some dirt, let every them eat now dirt. And then. <laughs> like, yeah. hell, if they're picking their nose and eating it, who cares? You know. Yeah. <laughs> if you drop if you drop shit on the floor, five second rule. You know, that's how it uh, well, works. Well, depending on where you are. Yeah, except for except <laughs> for enough. if you're in the hospital, there's like, no, it's gone. <laughs> mm, that's probably a bad idea. Yeah, hospital, <laughs> like train stations, real public yeah, areas. Yeah. I'd probably be like, mm, I mean, <laughs> why risk it? You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Although, you know, well, like I've seen kid, I've seen kids pick food up off of you know all sorts of different places, or you know, and and they've not grown extra digits, or they've not you know <laughs> nothing has changed with them. So yeah, there's yeah, been yeah. no mutations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true that well, like kids get sick a lot. Hey, do kids get well, sick a yeah, lot because... while they're like adjusting to developing an immune system? Right. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. why kids. Oh gosh, like having having a ten year old not with her not being in school right now, it's we haven't had as many colds in the house, but sure, yeah. they're they're little petri dishes, right? So they're exposed to everything. And it's funny because I, I would find that my daughter would get, you know, runny nose and maybe, you know, a fever for one day or not even a fever, and then I would catch it and I would be like three weeks to recover from whatever it was that she brought Shit. home. Yeah. But yeah, no yeah, the frequency of, of colds uh or like any upper upper respiratory tract type infections uh in kids is super, super high. Yeah. Not and at the they, moment, they but in out. normal. No, life. not at the moment, no. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> but it'll exactly. come. There'll be a nice spark oh, of that yeah. when we get back. Yeah. Something to look yeah. forward to. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. All the colds that we're gonna get. Well it's funny because my they went back to school here in Peel region for a, a period of time and in that time that my daughter yeah. went to school I did end up getting a cold, which I was like, Okay, well here we are, we're back to normal yeah. again. <laughs> this feels normal. It feels sick, but it's it's normal, you know. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, have you thank had you. COVID? Oh <laughs> I haven't sorry. I haven't had COVID, no. Um I've had a I've had a vaccine though. Um, oh, no good. one in my no one in my family has had it yet, luckily I guess. Um, but we're all vaccinated at this point. Um, That's good. I w- I, yeah, I wasn't like overly worried about getting it because my, my I'm like I'm young and healthy, and I'm like the chances of it being bad are relatively low, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm like I take the precautions obviously, and I, I do what I need to do, and I haven't. I mean, I barely left the house in like 18 months as ev- as is with everyone, right? Because that's what it is. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, we, we, it, the world's very strange, right? And you hear, and like, I try not take the extreme cases to be representative of what might happen to me. Cause I'm like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, but I could also die in a car crash. Like, just cause it happens to people, you know, the science says that it's probably not going to happen to me. And if it does, I'll mm-hmm. deal with it then. But like to have the anxiety that some people have, you know, even in my family, like it's just like overwhelming anxiety of oh, just of you everything. If you are a know? regular consumer of mainstream media, you... Yeah, it's like, a bad idea. People, yeah, I find people who are glued to the tube or through social media who are looking at different articles, they're, they're almost instilling a fear within themselves because... Fear sells. Like fear is what sells yes. in in mainstream media. And so, if you're hearing this narrative all of the time, and that's all you do is you listen to CNN, MSNBC, whatever, whatever station, um, then 
yeah, like it's like it's COVID and everybody's gonna die and the world is ending and yeah. oh my god, you know. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's now, just like yeah. Yeah, it's just like even even like <laughs> even if you're not doing news, if you're just doing like Facebook or shit, and how the algorithm yeah. works of feeding you more of what you're consuming, even if you don't like what you're consuming, you are consuming that, and so it'll give you more of it. And yeah, you you just see like all the worst of everything. I mean, you know, my mom will come to me and she'll say like, you know, oh, did you hear that there were like two twenty-four-year-old twins that that died of COVID recently? Oh, that's and horrible. I'm like. I'm like, that's really sad, but you know, the, firstly, it's another country. Uh, secondly, what? Are you, why are you telling me this? You know, like, why are you consuming this for yourself all day, every day? Like, it's unnecessary. Yeah. It makes you more anxious. It makes us more anxious because you're anxious. Like, mm-hmm. it's you're you're doing all the right things anyway, right? You don't need to well, fill yeah. your consciousness with this, right? Exactly. Or like and tracking the numbers. Yeah. Like that's another one, right? It's like, what are you going to track the numbers twice or three times a day for? Like, really, does this really matter to you? Like, it's good to know somewhat of what's going on, but like, you're also using numbers relative to like kind of what you know, and do they really mean anything to you? Like, it's hard to even it's comprehend what very, it means. Yeah, pers- right? perspective, perspective, and and the way that it's presented. How like how relevant are these numbers to say? you know, the population of people who have been tested or, you know, like, the, yeah. I, I feel that they, that the numbers that are provided don't paint the whole picture. And so when we actually think about this um, in relation to patient care, we yeah. don't treat a number, we don't treat a number, we treat the patient. And so yeah. that means that we have to look at everything to make sound decisions in our assessment to then Correct. look yeah. at what our treatment plan is going to be. And so, you know, I, I try to apply those same principles when I'm looking at information like that. Okay, so the numbers are, you know, 1,600 today, for example. I don't know if that's what the numbers are, but let's say that sure. the numbers were 1,600 today. Um, you know, what is that in relation to, like, what is the positivity rate? How many people were tested? Over what period of time were these tests done? Because the tests don't always correlate with when the test was done. So the numbers, like there's a, there's a lag in information. So the information doesn't always jive. And then how many mm-hmm. people are sick? How many people are recovered? How, you know, so breaking down, you have to have that context to be able to really truly understand what it is you're looking at. When, when all you see is a number and they're like, Oh my God, there's been, you know, 3000, 4,000 cases, people start freaking out. And then what's yeah. interesting is, is that they start to, uh, you know, put it, put blame on people for behaviors that really this is this is a um a virus that has been around for god knows how long and has evolved around us and and this is what viruses do viruses mutate viruses you know regardless of human behavior whether humans are you know behaving appropriately which what does that even mean um or not right so (laughs) you know we're we're dealing with it's crazy yeah, yeah, we're dealing I mean, with evolution and, here that is outside of us. Yeah, and people, I mean, you know, again, not to like blame or accuse people of things, but you're right, like people tend to vilify others that are acting differently to how they think people should be acting. Mm-hmm. And and in reality, they're not even really acting how they think they should be acting, right? It's like rules for me, rules for thee, but not for me or whatever it is. Me. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, settle down a second, you know? First of yeah. all, none of us really know what we're talking about 
right? <laughs> Uh, we all have a little bit of information on some stuff, and then it's mostly just mm-hmm. opinion. Um, well, that's and I mean that's right? and that's just how it works, right? Like even even the big political moves and the big decisions that get made. I mean, you hope it's based on good information and expert recommendations, but when it comes down to it, it's like who does the decision make? I mean, how does the decision maker feel about the situation? right and what do they feel is the right move and then they're going to do it and then it will work or not work or whatever but like that's just how it is right Um, exactly so here we are we're coming up to you know the united states a lot of people have had their second vaccination and the cdc has just released new guidelines to say that you can do the things in most situations with no mask on if you have both your vaccines so then of course you see the uproar of people that are like well, I can't trust it. How do I know they're not an anti-vaxxer? Yeah. And how do I know this? And how do like how can they prove to me? Well, how about you just mind your own business and go about your own day? If you want to make, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you feel yeah. better, like I'm not going to tell you what to do with your life. Don't tell other people what to do with their life. We have to at some point be able to trust one another to be able to move forward as a society with each other. And I just I feel that with you know all this this coverage on the mainstream media it's vilified people against one another and it's like these you know here's our camp here's your camp and it's us versus them kind of mentality and it's you know it it gets really frustrating to see the different um arguments that happen this is why i try to stay off of news because different arguments are happening (laughs) you know i mean just even with even with that you know you hear people say well i'm not going to take my mask off somebody might think that i'm a conservative well what yeah who gives a shit like Like, like, it's not a political issue it it is not a political issue but it's been turned into this political issue and that in some in some places i shouldn't say not not everybody thinks that but there is a lot of uh, a lot of people that have really politicized this and it's like no just like have have trust in your your fellow human yeah and And also this is how life life. is like before covid guess what the people walking around you in the street and you were touching worth and touching handrails and doing all that shit like some of those people had seriously deadly illnesses that you could catch oh yeah Oh, like yeah. that's way, just way how it works. Way more deadly than COVID, right? Yeah, way more yeah. deadly than COVID. Not to not to minimize how COVID no. has affected some people because it's it is been deadly tragic. for some people and debilitating. Yeah. Absolutely, but you're you're one hundred percent right that we've been exposed to a lot of other things that could be more harmful. And also, I think that the the narrative of like you know the sort of media narrative that has dominated is that. If you get COVID, at least for the beginning part, there was the sense, and I think that part of it was because there was it was unknown what was what would happen, <laughs> how bad it was, and whatever it was, right. and there were a lot of people who were dying, uh, which is terrible, right? Like I, I'm not making light of that, um, but it, it kind of instilled this fear in people of like, well, if you get COVID, it's serious, and you're going to be seriously ill and die, which might happen, but probably won't happen to most people now those who are immunocompromised and who have you know various situations okay that's different right but that's not most of the population so if you're not in that group then you getting covid is probably going to be relatively mild right and you've you're probably going to have had worse illnesses now like i know some people who like some family friends who have gotten covid who are in their like 
fifties or something like that. And it, it was fucking rough for them. Right. Oh, so wow. like, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Um, yeah, yeah. but, but I also know 10 or 20 times people who have gotten COVID and have felt little to nothing who are in the similar mm-hmm. same age group. Right. And it's yeah. like, okay, but you, you can be terrified and it makes sense why you would be, but life is like that. Life is dangerous, unfortunately. Right. And you don't know when walking past someone, you're going to contract like norovirus or some shit like that, which you could, I mean, like yeah. just shit happens, you know, and, or you might get the flu, which leads to pneumonia and people mm-hmm. die from that all the time. It's not the same as COVID, but like that does no. also happen. Right. Um, and it's like, we used to live in a world where you accept the risk of going out in the world because you had to. Well, I mean, some people mm-hmm. didn't and they were recluse and sure, it's not a general statement about everyone, but yeah. for the most part, you live your life and you deal with the challenges that come as they come and you trust the medical mm-hmm. field to be able to help you when needed, which they can do, right? And yeah. there, there's also this weird sense of like, if you get COVID, there's nothing that can be done, which is also not true. Like there's so many medications and things like that, that people will take and be given that'll make, that will help and alleviate symptoms. And maybe it's not curative, mm-hmm. but viruses don't get cured at the moment by modern no, medicine. No, they no. get treated, right? That's exactly and so right. you treat the symptoms and you manage it as best you can. And overwhelmingly, the majority of the time it gets better, right? And so it, it, it's a, it is a perspective thing, but you know, saying these kinds of things, it, it also kind of feels like you're saying something wrong, which is really weird. Yeah, all this, right? yeah it's so contra it's so controversial to talk about the, the realities yeah. of, of it, right? But it's it's really not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. Scientifically speaking, it's it's not controversial. But in the current like sphere of the social sphere, like it's it's just it's very weird. And I think it's because emotions to, yeah. run high, right? Yeah. Well, I think that people, uh, you know, in these, because this so much, you know, fear has been instilled that people are not actually thinking with their logical brain, hmm. right? They're, they're not using their prefrontal cortex to kind of break everything down in, in a way that's actually perceived properly. And so that you're right, they're running off of emotion and fear, and it's driven from a, a totally different place. And so you can hardly even have dialogue with people because they just get so like, you know, and... To, yeah, to talk about some of the realities, almost. yeah, that we're we're speaking of right here, which are you know again should not be controversial. Some people find that to be so controversial because maybe the experience for somebody that they know was completely horrible and terrible, and that's the only frame of reference that they have in addition to what the media machine has been feeding them. So yeah. you're right, you know the the climate amongst people. I mean, it will change. It will change over sure. time. It's it's got to go through its own period of adjustment but it's it's really really difficult to have honest and open dialogue about some aspects of this because people just they're, they're not ready for it yeah exactly and and there's also like a big hes like hesitation to even bring it up with people because you're like well what do they think you know like what if they're super scared and then i'm trying to suggest that we mm-hmm. you know have an outdoor coffee or something like that and and you know mm-hmm. what happens then like i don't want to pressure people into it and then this is you, you can get so lost in the anxiety of all of it mm-hmm. oh that, yeah well yeah exactly um, exactly and you know what just my my advice just ask the person 
hey, I'm not sure yeah. what your feelings are about getting together for a coffee, but I'd like to see you. And, you know, we can, you know, socially distance if you if you like, wear masks if you like, like whatever you're comfortable with. And then that way yeah. you premise it and then they can say yes or no. Exactly. Right? And then th that's the yeah. best you can do. And that's how you should relate to people anyway, you know, is you figure out 100%. what works for both of you. And if it can't mm -hmm. work, okay, that shit happens too. It's not so serious. So then we do this. We get we get online and we have a, yeah. a discussion over video chat because you know, this is what's <laughs> acceptable and, and good now. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what ends up happening as the economy starts to reopen some more. Uh, how the job market is going to be. Not all, like from, I guess, the perspective of is there going to be a lot of places that are going to be flexible with people working from home because we've had to adjust and, and how is this going to impact business moving forward and, and how people conduct their business with their teams. So it'll be interesting to see yes. how that all works out. Definitely. And like what happens if people on your team don't want to get vaccinated? How yeah. do you deal with that? I mean, I know it's a whole well, discussion, but it's like, that's yeah. going to happen. I mean, exactly. and they're yeah. either going to lie to you, they're either going to lie to you about it if you're going to be all fussy, or you can accept it, or it's it's very complicated, you know. Yeah, and I don't know yeah, what the right answer me, is, and I don't have any answers. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. For me, I like um, if you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. Like people have yeah. autonomy, like there's bodily autonomy, and people, you know, if they don't feel that they have enough information to make an informed decision, then. It's, there's nothing wrong with waiting to make that decision. Nothing wrong at all yeah. waiting, with waiting to make that decision. And if you decide not to do it, then that's fine. You know, um, I don't yeah. think that it should be your compulsory. Thing. You know, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I know that it's some, a fine some line. work exactly, and you know, I, I know that some workplaces will have a policy in place to say, like with influenza, for example, um, no, you don't have to get the shot. You know, if, if you choose yeah. not to, not for medical reasons, but if you choose not to get the shot and you do get sick with influenza, then you're off without pay. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that that is uh, some some workplaces policies in, right. in order to mitigate that, to encourage people to get their influenza vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. They certainly, are, at least not in Canada, I don't think they can mandate it. Um, I think it, it would. No. The. the repercussions would be too too huge for that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Should, and and they definitely it. shouldn't. Like, I, I'm of the opinion yeah. that no such thing should be mandated. Um, I, right. I would encourage people yeah. to get it. Like, I got it, and I would say, yes, that's it's probably yeah. the best idea. But if you don't want to, okay, fine. Do your thing. Yep, I, you th know, that's exactly it. not so it. serious yeah. to me. I'm not, I'm not here to fight. It's not, you know, like... Yeah. You do you do your thing and I'll do my thing and that's totally fine. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. And we'll both you know, suffer the about... consequences of it. You know? <laughs> no, like there, I mean you know, talk... we'll suffer our own consequences of what of what well, our choices exactly. are. Yeah, and, yeah. Well that's that's exactly what, what choice brings is some sort of consequence, whether good or bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um sorry, what were you what were you gonna say? Um I was just gonna mention about like the whole vaccine passport thing. Um, that that is a you know it is a normal thing when you're traveling to certain countries that you have to have you know a vaccine passport to prove that you've had specific mm -hmm. vaccinations like um, you know to go to Africa you need to have like your malaria shots and stuff so there there is a lot of different vaccinations that are compulsory for when you travel to certain areas of the world sure and so 
that for me is not a big issue you know sure if i was going to travel to another country and that was a requirement but it's i'm still trying to wrap my head around this idea of having vaccine passports for commerce so to be able yeah. to go and participate in activities like go to sporting events or go do you know like i'm 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 not sure how I feel about the whole situation because I think that in some ways, you know, it, it, it is a very private thing. I think, you know, what you decide to do with your with your sure. health decisions is your your decision. And so, you know, uh, not saying that, you know, it, it is breaking any privacy laws, but really, is it is it break? Like, it's kind of from an ethics perspective. It is like really nobody's business. It's an interesting point. Yeah. No, yeah. it's a good point. Um but uh, yeah, like I guess it's so complicated, and I, I think it will mm-hmm. it'll be very messy, right? Because you're also going to very quickly get a market of fake ones, um, which people will use just to do what they yeah. want to do anyway, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. And then it makes sense from like a private business perspective where you have to respect that they get to set the rules for their place, and so mm-hmm. they get to say, you know, I mean, like just like Costco, like you can't shop at Costco without a membership card and i mean it's irritating but they get to say that because it's their business right and so there'll be businesses that will say you need to have this proof and Mm -hmm. and it'll go either fine or not fine based on those decisions and they'll have to deal with exactly what comes of it right and so if they lose Uh, 30 if they lose 30 percent of sales because of it it'll be pretty soon before they get rid of that policy um, well, it, that's what it comes down know. to is the dollars and the cents in yeah. some of these policies. Yeah. I mean, for me, I don't really care. Like if I have to show that I'm vaccinated, I have no problem showing that. But it's, it's you know, I, I'm just one individual. Yeah. So no, for you have sure. to really think about what, what is good for the entire society and how practical it would be to implement something. I mean, it, it it's really, it's big. Like, then then what what vaccines do we then have to show like does it then you know make it mandatory that you have to have multiple vaccinations to even do your day-to-day business like sure for for me working in a hospital like if i was to go to another healthcare setting another hospital i'd have to do a pre-placement assessment where i would mm-hmm. be you know they'd have to check all my teeters just to see what i am immune to and if i have to have any boosters i'll have boosters you know i have to get an x-ray to see whether i have tuberculosis whether it's latent or active, like all sorts of stuff, right? And so that, that I mean, that makes sense because I'm, you know, in, in a healthcare position, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have to have access to that, like how far does it go? If we, if we start a vaccine passport, how far does it go? How many vaccines right. do we have to show proof of? And, and so there, there's a lot, lot of gray area that I think needs to be discussed and considered um, and I guess, you know, we'll, we'll see what the decision makers and policy makers go with. And, yeah. and I guess we go from there, right? Yeah. And we'll just see how it turns out because they might make decisions that quickly become obviously problems. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, yeah, we'll just have to deal with whatever it is that comes. Because it would be weird because it, it, like, can you stop people from buying food because they didn't want to have a vaccine? Or what happens if no, they had COVID? Yeah. Now... What happens if they had COVID? Like, I know there's there's discussion on whether you need to get vaccinated after you've had COVID, and it, it's probably there's you know arguments on both sides. 
But it's like, well, then you're going to have to have COVID passports to go with it to be like, have you had COVID or have you been vaccinated? Or, you know, like it's if you can't, then you no shopping here. Or mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. all right, settle down, you know, like it's not so. Yeah, you know, it's, we're not talking about the Black Death or whatever. Um, but some the people plague. view it that way. <laughs> yeah, the plague. Some people Bring view it that way. Dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On on oh one of those goodness. rolling carts, you know. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> what, and and they used to wear those masks with the like giant. Yeah, form, yeah. Whatever that was for, I have no idea. Oh, I think they used to put like spices and things like that inside the horn of the mask, which they believed mm-hmm. would. I don't know, help decrease the smell and protect, protect, yeah, protect them from whatever they were facing. Yeah. Oh my God, the smell, because there were so many dead bodies around. That's horrible to imagine. I couldn't even imagine, you know, like thinking, thinking about that time period, just the amount of death, like how many people got wiped out from, from that to the point where they're actually throwing bodies on cart. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, child mortality rates, until fairly recently, were, like, fairly high, right? You're, like... Yeah. People had, people had like, six kids because, like, two of them would make it. Yeah. Which yeah, is exactly. just That's... crazy. <laughs> and it wasn't even that uh, long know? ago. Like, no, it's still it was, like, a hundred years ago. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's still true in some places in the world. Like, yes. in yeah. underdeveloped places, it's still how it works. Yeah, um, you have to. I mean, yeah, what a world we live in, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried for what's happening in India right now. Um, yes. They're going through their second wave, and they're the variant Rough. that is uh, ripping through their country. So this is their second wave, I believe, um, and the variant that's ripping through their country is just it's it's bringing so much mass death and turmoil to the country. You know. Um, there's it's it's horrible to like they, see. they just they don't have the they don't have the infrastructure medically they don't have the like they just don't have the resources and and so it's really sad to be hearing yeah. of any any country where there is lots of death as a result of a virus i mean it's, it's heartbreaking yeah. to see some of the news that's coming out of there oh you know, it, it is really terrible and, and they're like know, mass cremations and the mass burials yeah. it's like that's so rough it uh, it really puts things into perspective as to how fortunate we are to be living in Western society, that we have 100%. access to hospitals, especially in Canada, with us having you know uh, universal health care, basic health care, you know, um, having having access to health care, even though it's not equally distributed, and we have our own problems with that. But you know, we we just have so many more resources and options, and we're a more um, like we, we have more, uh, fiscal resources as well. Like we, we definitely are a richer society than some uh, of yeah. the, you know, countries out there. And so, you know, count your blessings because it's you know, truly being a born blessing. in Canada and living in Canada, like we really do have it good in comparison to other places. Absolutely. And it's easy to lose sight of that. If you get mad about mm-hmm. like vaccine rollouts and things like that, it's like, okay, but you just take a step back for a second and be like, well, Half the world don't have access to anything, vaccines or mm-hmm. medical care or otherwise, right? Like, it's okay. Like, it, it, you can be frustrated that your vaccine is happening a month or two months later than you would like or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, okay, but it's still free, you know. If you start dying, yep. there's people who will take care of you. 
um, for free. You don't have to worry about that mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, they're competent, you know, some of the best in the world. Um, and it's readily accessible for a lot of people, maybe not everyone, but, you know, generally speaking. Um, mm -hmm. And it is, it, 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 I, I do feel blessed to be able to live in, in such a society, despite its, you know, challenges, let's say, which everything, everyone mm -hmm. will have, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, we've just, you know, done an hour 40. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure talking awesome. to you as always. You're one of my favorite people. Uh, thank so thank you so much for, for coming on today and we'll definitely do a, another episode sometime. Yeah, that would be great. I would love that. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye.